It's good to see everyone back out with us tonight. I want to thank you for joining us again as we conclude the Lord's, we conclude the Lord's Day in praise to Him and in study of His Word. I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. This evening we're going to look at two of the seven letters that is... Uh, that are written and recorded for us to the seven churches of Asia in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. I'm going to talk for a few moments about the church in Sardis that is contained in the first few verses of chapter 3, and then Jeremy is going to uh, talk to us for a few minutes about the church in Philadelphia that follows Sardis. And and there's an interesting dichotomy between these two churches. Sardis is described, as we'll see in just a moment, as a dead church. And we're going to talk about what that means and how that can happen. And on the contrast to that, we will then read and study about the church at Philadelphia, a faithful group of God's people that are trying to do and to be what God wants them to do and be in their location. So I want to begin by just giving you an idea of where we are, and then we'll read the letter here in Revelation chapter 3. So geographically speaking, you can see on the map behind me, and the big red arrow pointing to where Sardis is. And one of the interesting things about all seven of these churches is they're actually very closely located to one another. Uh, between Sardis and Philadelphia, I believe, is only about 20 miles. But all of the seven churches that uh, have letters written to them here in, these first, or in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, they're all, they would all fit between here and Louisville, if you were to, to put that in perspective. Uh, and so they're all fairly closely uh, located to one another. And so keep that in mind as we go through some of the things that I want to talk about in regards to Sardis, because the geographical location is going to play into that just a little bit. So with that said, let's read this letter together, and then we'll make a few points about uh, what the angel of the church in Sardis has written. Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. A relatively sad picture is painted here of the church in Sardis. They have a name, they are alive, but they are dead. And I've wondered, I've wondered uh, as many times as I have read this, what that must have looked like for a church to have a name, to be alive, but to be dead. And I think as I, as I kind of try to picture that and envision what that would look like, in my mind anyway, what I see 
is a group of people who probably had a decent place to come and worship. Maybe they even had a sign out front that says who they are, and the sign had all the right words on it. And you come inside, and they, they go through the motions of, of seemingly doing what they're supposed to do. They're there. They have a name. They're breathing. They're alive. They're even talking to one another. But their hearts are dead. And I think about that, and I, sometimes I wonder, I wonder if God sees that sometimes in some of us. Moments where we're simply going through the motions. We're, we're here, we're kind of mumbling through some of the songs, and we close our eyes when it's time to pray, and we take the Lord's Supper, and we're, we're here. We're here. We're alive, we're here, but what's inside? Because what's inside is what God is really focused on. And for the church in Sardis, as he looked down at these people, what he saw were a group of people who showed up when they were supposed to show up, but they were dead inside. I think that is something that all of us have to be cognizant of and aware of, that the same thing can happen to us if we're not careful. The routine that we go through week in and week out of coming to Bible class and coming to worship and those types of things, if we allow it to, if we allow it to, it can become just that, routine. God wants excitement. He wants life. He wants a vibrant church. And what he sees when he looks down at the church in Sardis is one that he describes as dead. There's another interesting thing that I noticed in studying for this as I read through the other letters that are contained here to the other churches. One thing that really stood out to me about some of these other letters is the opposition that some of these other churches were facing. And just to give you a brief synopsis, the church in Ephesus The Nicolaitans were causing problems uh, there. Some of the Jews were causing trouble in Smyrna. Pergamus was being bombarded by the doctrine of Balaam. Thyatira had Jezebel-like teachers in their midst. And even in Philadelphia, there were some Jews there who were also trying to cause some problems. These other churches were were having to deal with, with opposition that was called attention to in these letters. And remember, going back to the map that we looked at just a moment ago, all these churches are very close together. It would seem as if what one was dealing with, the others would likely be dealing with as well. But but there is no direct opposition that God calls attention to here in his letter to the church in Sardis. No direct opposition that he calls attention to. And that's always stood out to me. I I wonder, why not? is Is there no opposition that these people are facing? I mean... Surely, they're dealing with some of the same things that some of these other churches are dealing with. And and perhaps they were, and it just wasn't called attention to here. But I do think it's worth pointing out that a dead church is rarely going to offend anyone. And as such, there may not have been much in the way of opposition. Because in order for someone to oppose you, you have to stand for something. And a dead church, it's not going to be taking a very hard stand on anything. 
And as such, there may not have been a whole lot of opposition. Because they may have been the kind of people that'll just go with whatever comes their way. A dead church is rarely going to offend anyone, but as I have up here on the screen, a dead church is also rarely going to change anyone. And we've talked recently about the call that God has given to his people to not be the kind of people that just accept sin, but to be the kind of people that change hearts and to pull people away from sin. And in order to do that, we have to take a stand against it. And when we take a stand against sin, that's when opposition is going to rear its head. And it appears as if in Sardis that wasn't a problem. And I can tell you, I, I, I think the same is, it would be true today. If there comes a point in time where we no longer take a stand against sin that will be the day when we rarely face opposition from anyone. But if we are the kind of people that God wants us to be, the kind of people that are going to take that stand against sin, we have to be prepared for opposition to come our way. We will offend people. We will rub people the wrong way. And that opposition is inevitable. But in a certain way, we should find joy in that. Because we can look at this as a pattern and realize that that means I'm taking a stand where God wants me to take a stand. Sardis was not a church that was doing that. Sardis was a church that had given up. Sardis was a church that didn't oppose or stand for anything. And as such, they were a church that wasn't changing anyone either. And then lastly, I think it's interesting that in the midst of this church being described as dead, there, there is, is some level of hopeful language found for those who will, who will remain faithful. Look in verse number 2. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Verse 3. Remember therefore... How you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief. And, I will not, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names in Sardis who have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. You see, there were some still, even amongst the dead church, there were still some individuals who were trying to do what was right, who had not defiled themselves. And to me, that's a strong lesson to all of us, that regardless of the situation we find ourselves in, you can be faithful. No matter how difficult that may seem in the moment, and I can only imagine that if you were a Christian in Sardis trying to do what was right, you stood out like a sore thumb. And it was probably a very difficult environment to remain faithful and to remain undefiled. But, but the lesson here is that you can do that. And God calls upon the individual to remain strong, even in the face of a very difficult situation. Now, I think we are blessed here to be around a lot of vibrant Christians who are serious about serving God. 
But for you individually, that may not always be the case. That may not always be the case. Depending on where you are in your life, that may not always be the case. But the expectation that God has for you doesn't change. You are still called upon to be faithful. And if someone in the midst of a church that is dead can do it, then you and I can do it as well. We have to remain faithful. And that that glimmer of hope, that that glimmer of hope that is, is given to these individuals in Sardis also serves as a glimmer of hope for the church there. Because if there are individuals who remain faithful and who remain strong, then there is still hope for that to spread and for others to be brought back to life, to rededicate themselves to the truth, to rededicate their lives to God and to serving Him. And so not only is it important for our own salvation to remain faithful in the midst of difficult times and many trials, but it's also a responsibility that we have then to help our brothers and sisters do the same. And the church in Sardis was in a situation where they desperately needed that. They desperately needed those few, those few individuals to have a voice, to oppose sin, to stand for something and to set an example so that hopefully others would follow that. Jeremy? I feel like every time John and I pass that we should tag out or, you know, shake hands or, you know, something feels odd just walking past him every time. You know, we'll keep your Bibles open to Revelation chapter 3. That's where we're going to be. A, a church that we just had talked about geographically so close together from one to the other, just a few miles apart. But yet their relationship with God, their Uh, relationship with each other, what is said about them so drastically different. And so here we are in Revelation chapter 3 and talking about the church in Philadelphia. And and before we get into what the text has to say, I want to give you just a couple of kind of key important things about the city itself, one of which I think is ultimately pretty important that I think is even referenced in the letter that is written to them specifically. Philadelphia, as a city during this time, was an important, important city. It was an imperial post city. It sat right right on the road that went from one side of the world ultimately to the other side of the world. It was often called Little Athens by the fact that it was full, like Athens was, of temples to various deities. Certainly would have been an obstacle for the Christians that were there in Philadelphia. But one other interesting thing, I don't know how you would ever make a choice to live there, but it also sat on a very active fault and had frequent earthquakes, frequent earthquakes. I was doing a little bit of reading about the city this week and and the the amount of earthquakes, big earthquakes were mind-boggling. And oftentimes, the earthquakes would be so destructive, it would take years to rebuild the city in time for another earthquake to cause massive damage. One in particular in 17 AD. In 17 AD, the earthquake that hit the city of Philadelphia was so devastating, so destructive to the town, 
that something happened that probably doesn't happen very often, but the Roman emperor at the time, Tiberius, withheld pulling taxes from every single person in the city. I don't know if that happened very often, probably not. But it did. And so the destructive nature of these earthquakes, I think, will play a role in what is said specifically about them. So much like we did with John and the the church in Sardis, we're going to do very similar things. We're going to take a look at the passage. We're going to read it through. We're going to point out a couple of things that hopefully can be helpful to us as we think about this letter here and then by way of application, our work here at Trader's Point. In Revelation chapter 3, beginning of verse 7, it says, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, He who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your work. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It doesn't take very long for you to realize as you read this chapter from the very beginning, Revelation chapter 3, and the letter that's written there to the one that we have just read, how drastically different they are. Again, very close geographically, but two very different letters. A church that was dead, that was struggling in nearly every capacity, it seems. And now a church where really doesn't lie any condemnation of any kind. Commendation for sure, but really admonition. Stay the course. Stay focused. Be watchful. Know who you are. Keep going. Those ideas. And there are a couple of things for me that really stand out about this letter. I think it's interesting how it is that Jesus is introduced to us. We don't have the time to go through all of these letters, but if you've not ever taken an opportunity to read through all of the letters that are written, I would encourage you to do so. Uh, John made mention that he did that. I've done that a couple of times this week, and I'm telling you, it doesn't take you all week to do it. Just a couple of minutes. I mean, in just a couple of minutes, you can work your way through all seven letters. But what's really interesting is how differently and how many different ways Jesus is introduced. It's really an interesting study. And here you have one that we hear a lot, but the other we don't hear as much. The one who is holy, we know and hear that commonly, but also he who is true. Just looking that word up in the Greek, it is not a copy. The original God. Authentic. And I love the idea of that. That this is something coming from the original. 
the true, the authentic God. I love how that idea is there. He opens the door specifically for us. As he makes mention that not only is he holy and true, but also he is the one who has the authority to open and to close doors. And that idea is what's made mention of specifically here. Because he talks about an open door that he has placed before them. If you took notice in Revelation chapter 3 at verse 8, I know your works, he says. See, I have set before you an open door that no one can shut. Why? Because he's already made mention in verse 7. He is the only one that's able to do that. He opens, he shuts. And he has set before them an open door, an opportunity. That's how this phrase is often used in Scripture. I want to give you a couple examples of that. In Acts chapter 14 and verse 27. In Acts chapter 14 and verse 27, when they had come together, this is after uh, Paul's first missionary journey. He's telling them about all that has happened. And he said when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 9, again, the Apostle Paul makes reference to this idea, for a great and effective door has opened to me. And there are many adversaries. That's going to come into play with Philadelphia as well. Again, the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 12, furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, a door was opened to me by the Lord. And then finally, in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 3, is as he's writing to the brethren here in Colossae and talking about the moving to and fro, he makes mention of, in the midst of their prayers, of meanwhile praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the world to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains. Throughout his writings, you have this idea of an open door of opportunity being there. But what we also see is that with opportunities comes obstacles. And that was true for the church here in Philadelphia. It was certainly true for the Apostle Paul. And it remains true for us today. Obstacles. A couple of them are mentioned very specifically here. One in verse 8, I know your works, see I have set before you an open door, no one can shut. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. I think this is pointing probably to the size of the congregation. Certainly I wouldn't say it is to their faith, they're lifted up and lauded by Christ in every way. But as John made mention, they also have adversaries specifically. Opposition of the Jews in the city who say they are Jews but they're not and they are opposing. They are causing problems. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 9, the church in Smyrna faced the same exact thing. Jews who were not Jews but liars. So what you have are opportunities but with opportunities comes obstacles. I want to talk just for a second about that idea. Because when we're dealing with opportunities... With opportunities comes obstacles. And then it becomes, where is my focus? What what am I seeing? Am I seeing and focus on the opportunities or am I seeing and focusing on the obstacles? You see, one comes out of our unbelief or lack of faith and the other comes out of our faith. If it is the obstacles 
that constantly are our focus, we are struggling with our faith. But in the face of obstacles, our focus remains on the opportunities that we have in front of us. We are being driven by our faith. And now it comes down to just a question of answering which of those is the case. You know, it's interesting when we think about opportunities, we often will reference opportunities evangelistically. And we made read passages that pointed to that fact directly. And that certainly is one of the things that we see in Scripture. But God is apt to give us opportunities in all kinds of different ways. But I want us to think not necessarily of our individual opportunities, even though I think applications for that are still here. But as I was studying through this text, and I am reminded that this is a letter that is written to the church in Philadelphia about their collective opportunities that they've been given. I thought it would be good for us for just a moment to also think about that. You see, it's easy for us to think about our individual opportunities. We need to be doing that. As I'm living my everyday life, I'm going about my everyday routine and the opportunities that God may place in front of me to uh, affect others for good, to talk about Him and to share the gospel. Opportunities that Christ and God, that they will put in front of us each and every day individually. They are there. We need to be praying for those opportunities. We need to be taking advantage of those opportunities. We need to not be pushing or, or letting those opportunities slip by as much as we possibly can. But I want us to also consider that collectively we have opportunities that we've got to make sure we are not losing sight of, but that we're taking advantage of. A church like we have here at Traders Point, the opportunities that we have collectively are vast. I think it would be good for us for just a few minutes to kind of consider are we taking advantage of those opportunities? Or are we allowing obstacles to cloud our taking advantage of those opportunities? Easy ones, such as the opportunity that we have to worship together. The opportunity that we have each and every Lord's Day to gather here together collectively and worship together. An incredible opportunity that we have certainly to lift up Jehovah, but also to do that together. And the fellowship that we have by sitting next to one another here in the pew, not at home on the couch, but here on the pews. And praising God in song together and praying to God together and studying from his word together. Powerful opportunities that we have. And I'll ask, that collective opportunity that we have for worship, is that something that we are taking full advantage of? Or do we often allow the world and its obstacles to push us away from that opportunity? The opportunity that we have outside of our worship, but still to be here collectively to study his word. Our elders and their wisdom have given us opportunities on Sunday mornings, on Wednesday nights to to be together and to study from God's word together. The wisdom in that. To not only allow us to grow individually and the good that that does for the whole, but the good that is there for us to study together. 
to grow together. It's very different from my individual study sitting maybe in my own living room or in my office all by myself. That study is important. But the collective opportunity to study God's Word together. And again, the question, am I taking advantage of that opportunity? Maybe the Bible studies that we have that are in place here, I'm not taking advantage of that opportunity. I'm not growing in that place. I'm not helping my brothers and sisters to grow. Maybe I'm choosing because of obstacles that are in the world to not be here to study God's word with them. Maybe I pick and choose. Maybe I often come, but I'm late and don't join in. Or I come and do something else instead of studying God's word with everyone. Opportunities that our elders make mention of that we have to help other Christians all around the world. You see, there are so many opportunities that we have collectively that we need to also be taking advantage of. And whether it's our individual opportunities, whether it's our collective opportunities, ultimately God will be there to help us. He's promised us. Let's go back to Revelation chapter 3 as we close this idea down. As he has said, as he states, listen, you have opportunities, you have a door that is placed before you. There are obstacles in place. But in the midst of those obstacles, I am here. And he says in verse 9 specifically about these enemies, he says, I'll take care of them. They're there. They're trying their best to cause a problem. But he says in verse 9, I will make them come and worship before your feet to know that I have loved you. He he promises them, "I, I can take care of these adversaries, these obstacles. I'll take, don't worry about them. Don't focus on them. I'll take care of them. Verse 10, he promises he's going to keep them safe. You've kept my command, verse 10, to persevere. He says, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which will come upon the whole world. It's a promise that he makes. You won't have to focus on those obstacles around, I will keep you safe. He says, I will honor you, verse 12. I think the phraseology is important for them. When he says, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar. I will make him strong. I will make him sure in the temple of my God. I think the symbolism of that would be important to a city constantly shaken by the earth. God's promise that he will make them stable and sure. There's no need to go out or flee. There's no need to run away. Because there is no way that you'll be destroyed. And then ultimately as we think about all of these opportunities that is placed and all the promises that's made. The reality that if God opens the door. There is an opportunity that we must take advantage of. Above all. For us and our application. To think about tonight. Maybe this week is that above all, we have to remain faithful to be able to see the opportunities, not the obstacles. What a powerful lesson we have from the church here in Philadelphia. A powerful lesson 
to teach us about taking advantage of the opportunities that we have. Regardless of the obstacles that may cloud us, that may try to trick us, that may try to knock us down, I'll take care of the opportunities that God opens. And ultimately, as we close, the added importance, and biblically what we see, of praying for these opportunities. Praying for the opportunities individually, but also praying for opportunities collectively for this church and this community to be able to, as John made mention, to be a group of people that is enacting change.